Welcome back to Reading Rainbow. As we've discussed, we've now gone through how Asia may have played a part in the discovery of America. We've also discussed the possibility of aliens, though highly unlikely. We've discussed how Christopher Columbus discovered the Caribbean in 1492. And we've also discussed how fragmented different tribes of the land were during the exploration period between the years of 220 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. Now let us go back and look at some of the lost tribes in the New World. Let's get into it. Who were the lost tribes in the New World? Could it be that native populations in the Americas were descended from ancient peoples of the Near East. Some claim that white Indians, the progeny of Welsh colonists, roamed the North American continent. As the wary settlers of the American continent pushed their way stubbornly into the wilderness, out across the plains towards the sun that had just set in a blaze of color, they told stories about strange encounters in a new land. Sitting around the campfire at night, someone would begin a tale about white Native Americans who had been sighted among the crags of the next rugged mountain range. In one man's version, these curious beings were thought to practice the rites of ancient Israel. Others reported that the Indians they had met spoke a language that evoked the rhythmical sounds of Welsh. One of these mysterious tribes, so the story goes, even cherished a printed Bible. To some, the conclusions was obvious. White natives could exist only if earlier contact had been made by travelers from old world countries. Europeans must have come to these shores and gone native, or they had been captured and then forced or seduced into intermarriage. Their progeny would have become creatures of almost inconceivable complexity. Still alive to the traditions of European culture, but fundamentally adjusted to the demands of life in the dangerous, dramatically beautiful wilds of America. Even down to the present stories of white natives that live on in folklore of some regions of the United States, this is not a matter of the occasional light-skinned Native American, of the infrequent intermarrying that occurred along the leading edge of settlement of the West. Distinct tribes living as integral communities appear in the stories handed down from generation to generation of early settlers. They are white and they are native, and the fascination with them underscores how little was actually known about the huge continent that was so quickly being tamed by the old world's dogged invaders. Perhaps the most popular of these tales centered on the figure of Prince Madoc Ab Owain Gwynedd of Wales. The story first published in 1584 relates that in the year 1170, Madoc and 120 of his followers fled a civil war in their homeland to make a new beginning across the sea. According to the tale, Maddock and his party landed at Mobile Bay, Alabama. 
and were thus the first Europeans to settle in America. It seemed reasonable to assume that Maddock would have had the skill and perhaps the inspiration to make this ocean crossing. Seals from ancient Welsh ports show sturdy ships with square-rigged sails that were no doubt capable of making long journeys. It was an age of legend, and sailors must have been no less garrulous than now. Perhaps this gossip of trade fueled the desires of men, whose national folklore celebrated a magic country beyond the looking-glass of the sea. Certainly, Western Europe was fertile ground for the belief that Maddox's efforts were successful, and since England's reigning House of Tudor was of Welsh origin, court historians were anxious to press Maddox's claim into order to assert England's new world priority over the Spanish. In 1584, Dr. Powell's History of Cambria affirmed that the Welsh prince not only discovered North America, but also returned home to gather together more of his own nation, acquaintance, and friends to inhabit that fray and large country, and thither again. The historian was also mentioned the use of brightish words and names throughout Mexico, and the report by Cortes that Moctezuma claimed descent from a race that came from a generation very far in a little island in the north. Dr. Powell's account was popularized by many English writers, including Sir Walter Raleigh, whose History of the World, 1614, notes that Native Americans had been heard to use words derived from Welsh. England's renowned skeptic, Samuel Johnson translated an ancient Welsh ode about Madoc into Latin. In the early 19th century, Robert Southey, who later became Poet Lorette, composed Madoc. But who can tell what feelings filled my heart, gray from the ocean, when we left the ship, and cleft with rapid oars the shallow wave, and stood triumphant on another world. To the Welsh who began to settle in America during the 17th century, the story made more credible by reports of Welsh-speaking natives. In 1666, Morgan Jones, chaplain to the governor of Virginia, and a Welshman told of being captured on a trip to the Carolinas by the Tuscarora Indians. It was in the British tongue, that is Welsh, that he learned he would be ransomed without harm. It was perhaps the first of many such stories. Sometime in the 1660s, a Welsh sailor washed ashore after a shipwreck in the Atlantic, conversed with North American Indians who spoke only a form of Welsh, but also referred to an ancestral homeland that could have been Great Britain. Travelers in the succeeding years would recount experiences that sounded similar on both significant points, use of the Welsh language and tradition of origin across the Atlantic. In 1721, a Catholic priest, 
Father Charlevoix, heard from the Iowa Indians of the Omans three days' journey from them, who had white skin and fair hair, especially the women. Fourteen years later, a French explorer known to make scrupulous observations, the Sire de la Verendere, reached an unusual Missouri River tribe, the Mondan. He was certain that this light-skinned people, who lived in villages laid out with streets and squares, showed at least a trace of European ancestry. He thought he heard the names of Jesus and Mary spoken, and then men he left behind to study the Mandan language found affinities with the dialect of Brittany, a language with words bearing resemblance to Welsh. Later visions confirmed Verendir's observations. One young Welshman reported that he saved his own life when captured by white men in Indian dress by addressing them in the language native to them and to him, Welsh. A Louisiana Frenchman who had explored the Missouri told of Indians, rather a yellowish complexion, many of them red-haired. One settler reportedly paid a visit to a Welsh tribe living on the west bank of the Missouri. A Captain Isaac Stewart, traveling up the Red River from the Mississippi, encountered a nation of Indians, remarkably white and whose hair was reddish color. The women were beautiful, high-browed, with bluish eyes and perfect lips. The elders of the tribe, according to the captain, said that their ancestors had come from a foreign country to the coast of Florida, and then the Spaniards had driven them toward the west. Let us break for a second and look at Catlin, painter of Mandan. I set out alone, unaided and unadvised, resolved to rescue from oblivion so much of their primitive looks and customs as the industry and ardent enthusiasm of one lifetime could accomplish, wrote self-taught artist George Caitlin. He spurred a legal career in Pennsylvania to brave the frontier and paint the little-known Plains Indians from 1830 to 1836. His naive but heartfelt and detailed portraits in action scenes would earn him fame in America and Europe while introducing urban sophisticates to such tribes as the Sio, Pane, and Comanche. But his ardent enthusiasm was reserved for the unusual Mondan, who lived in the upper regions of the Missouri River. Not only did this driven romantic find the women exceedingly pleasing and beautiful, he also came to believe that their customs and looks clearly indicated an origin different from all other tribes, concluding that they must have sprung from some other origin than that of other North American tribes. He reported that they believed themselves to be the first people created on earth, and was certain that they had imperfect knowledge of the great biblical flood, the fall of Adam and Eve, and the appearance and death of a savior. Eventually, stories about white natives conversant in the Welsh tongue were to be heard from the Missouri-Mississippi area, the Carolinas, 
Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, and other nearby regions. The American folk hero, Daniel Boone, thought that a tribe of blue-eyed Indians he had met was probably related to the Welsh, though I have no means of assessing their language. Others espied Welsh natives from the Dakotas to Virginia and from British Columbia to Mexico and Peru. John Evans, a young Welshman, specially commissioned by enthusiasts of the Madoc legend, traveled from London to America in 1792 to find the supposed descendants of the prince and his followers. He was to report in respect of the Welsh Indian, I have only to inform you that I could not meet with such a people, and from intercourse I have had with natives from latitude 35 to 40, I think you may with safety inform our friends they, that they have no existence. But there were dark hints that Evans had been bought off by the Spaniards, who did not want increased British interest in the area. His admission of failure to find white natives did not kill the legend. In 1804, two U.S. Army officers, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, were commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson to explore the land included in the Louisiana Purchase. To aid them with their expedition, Jefferson sent Lewis a map of the Missouri River as far as the Mandans. Aiding it was done by a Mr. John Evans by order of the Spanish government. In late October of that year, Lewis and Clark reported that they reached Mandan settlements, where they spent the winter among the natives. Archaeological support for the tales of Welsh-speaking natives has centered upon three ruined forts, apparently of pre-Columbian origin, on sites near Chattanooga, Old Stone Fort, Tennessee, DeSoto Falls, Alabama, and Fort Mountain, Georgia. Considered to be unlike native construction in the region, they seem to date back to the 12th century, a few centuries before the age of exploration. The Tennessee site in particular, with its walls and single gateway and moat fed by the Duck River, resembles ancient remains that have been studied in Wales. Yet it is not in ancient stonework, but in the oral literature shared by Europeans and Native Americans that Maddock and the white natives live on. Even the beloved governor of Tennessee's formative years, John Seaver, helped keep the story alive. He recalled that a Cherokee chief had told him of the whites who had crossed the great water and landed near the mouth of the Alabama River near Mobile, before being driven off toward the muddy Missouri River. What are we to make of these many legends? Do we simply accept the likelihood that history is what we choose to believe? In 1953, a memorial tablet was set up at Fort Morgan, Mobile Bay, Alabama, in memory of Prince Madoc, a Welsh explorer who landed on the shores of Mobile Bay in 1170 and left behind 
with the natives the welsh language but since no historical document has turned up that maddock was here the plaque was removed in the early 1980s no such precious location has been marked out as the landing place for the ten lost tribes of israel but as authors of one volume about early travelers and seafarers have pointed out with some exasperation their presumed migrations crisscrossed the globe virtually all the peoples on earth they write have been identified at one time or another with vanished descendants of tribes that rebelled against the rule of solomon's son rehoboam according to biblical history only those two tribes that remain loyal to the king the tribes of judah and benjamin survived the various invasions conquests and massacres that plagued the ancient middle east the other ten tribes were carried off by the assyrians in the second half of the eighth century b c the old testament mentions the fate of these unfortunate tribes for the last time in two kings seventeen twenty three so was israel carried away out of their own land to assyria unto this day this loss was not easily accepted at times of intensified persecution surviving jews were likely to take up rumors of a great growing jewish empire somewhere to the east the legacy of the lost ten during the horrors of the crusades in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries for example many jews tried to escape to this fabled haven their hopes were strengthened by the occasional appearance of self-described ambassadors who claimed to represent the lost tribes living in the near east or iran inevitably the age of exploration opened up new speculation about the whereabouts of the descendants of the tribes taken away to assyrian captivity where had they gone when that infamous empire collapsed could a people that had endured so much in ancient history and whose two fellow tribes survived such severe trials for the next two millennia disappear from the face of the earth would they not have won out even though tribes like the hittites or the huns or the scythians seem to have vanished for all time in 1650 one answer was published the hope of israel by manas se ben israel a rabbi in amsterdam he told of a spanish jewish traveler antonio de montezinos whose indian guide on a south american trip greeted him with shema israel hear o israel furthermore the guide reported that many people of the same origin were living in the highlands near quito ecuador mana say dedicated a volume of his work to the english parliament in hope that jews would be readmitted to the land biblical prophecy was deeply involved in the rabbi's motive for he believed that the messiah would not come until the jews were scattered to all ends of the earth oliver cromwell received manasseh 
in England and discussed his views, but in the end the rabbi's cause had limited success. General readmission was not granted, though some Jews were permitted to live in London and to establish a synagogue there. Meanwhile, other religious interpretations were becoming confused with the aims of amateur anthropology. If Jews had indeed survived, their existence on the American continent might prove that the God of Israel is a God of truth and righteousness, and that whom he loves, he loves until the end. Whether or not most observers were seeing what they wanted to see, or what a sincere faith gave them reason to hope, to see travelers in many parts of North and South America began to discover Old Testament customs in practice. Ritual calendars, purification rites, circumcisions, flood myths, sacrifices to gods, the veneration of a tribal ark. Native Americans were daily acting in ways that a European had obviously encountered only in biblical stories about the earliest Jewish prophets and their families. Numerous parallels were put forth in a book written in the late 18th century by James Adair, a trader in Indian territories for at least 40 years. In chance, he heard among the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and their neighbors, he found the name Jehovah. According to Adair, the Indian phrase for dead or lost, Il et con eha, also meant gone to Kana. And the word for winter, Korah, was borrowed unchanged from the Hebrew. He reported that when the Indians met at night to gladden and unite their hearts before Yohewah, they sing over and over the Hebrew word for Messiah. He also saw Hebraic influences in the ritual oath of a witness before an Indian judge. By Indian, I do mean Native American. I have told you the naked truth, which I most solemnly swear by this strong religious picture of the adorable, great, divine, self-existent name, which we are not to profane, and I likewise attest it by his beloved, unspeakable, sacred, essential name. Early in the 19th century, a young member of Parliament, Edward King, Viscount Kingsborough, was struck by the beauty and mystery of a Mexican Indian codex or manuscript in the Bodleian Library at Oxford. He exhausted his fortune and perhaps his life in attempting to prove that the lost tribes of Israel were the ancestors of the Native Americans in Mexico. Nearly half of Adair's book was reprinted by the passionately convinced Kingsborough but he sank the bulk of his fortune into the publication of nine magnificent volumes of Mexican codices with commentary entitled Antiquities of Mexico. Twice he was thrown into debtor's prison when he was unable to meet the bills of printers and paper manufacturers. On his release, he doggedly continued his publishing efforts. In 1837, 
imprisoned a third time, he died at the age of 42. He was probably the victim of the infamous prison disease, typhus, but his friends insisted that the cause of death was a broken spirit. Had he lived a year more, he would have inherited his father's estate and a secure income. Kingsborough, though his ideas were never to gain academic respectability, may indirectly throw some light by his example upon the fascination the Lost Ten have held for so many writers, explorers, amateur historians, and people of faith. As the 19th century historian Hubert Howe Boncroft commented, We should speak and think with respect of one who spent his lifetime and his fortune, if not his reason, in an honest endeavor to cast light upon one of the most obscure spots in the history of Mon. But the story of the lost tribes is, for some people, painfully unresolved. Perhaps the disappearance of so many tribes is only too suggestive of the fragility of any nation, of any individual, in opposition to the impassive forces of history. It would be comforting, it might even be inspiring, if someone could prove that among the white Native Americans there coursed the blood of the tribes of Reuben, God, Ephraim, Zebulun, Simeon, Don, Asher, Manasseh, Naphtali, and Issachar. As we just covered it, I would like to read the Great American Names story of Lewis and Clark, Explorers of the Louisiana Territory. Opening up the West, after the United States had bought the Louisiana Territory, this land was to be explored. This large area was the land between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. The men chosen for this job were Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. What they did was very important. Their exploration showed the value of the great territory the United States had purchased. It opened up the territory to trade. Most important of all, it led the way to the settlement of the West. Meriwether Lewis Meriwether Lewis was born in Virginia in 1774. At the age of 20, he enlisted in the militia and a year later joined the regular army. After five years, he became a captain. When Thomas Jefferson was elected president, he made Lewis his private secretary. Two years later, the United States bought the Louisiana Territory from France. Jefferson chose Lewis to take charge of the expedition to the new territory. William Clark was also born in Virginia in 1770. He was a brother of George Rogers Clark. When he was 14 years old, the family moved to Kentucky. At the age of 22, he became a lieutenant in the, of the infantry in the United States Army. He took part in battles against the natives. He left the army because of poor health, but seven years later, he entered it again. The following year, he was asked by Lewis to become one of the commanders of the expedition. 
Across the mountains to the Pacific, Jefferson had a talk with two of the leaders and explained what they were to do. You are to travel up the Missouri River as far as possible, he said. You are then to cross the mountains and find a river that will lead to the Pacific Ocean. Make maps as you go along. Observe carefully and make definitive notes on what you learn in the new territory. Lewis and Clark, with other members of the expedition, prepared for the trip. In the fall of 1803, supplies were assembled near St. Louis. In the spring of 1804, the party set out in three rowboats. They started up the Missouri River. It was hard work, for they were going against the current. They had to use oars as well as sails. After traveling about 1,600 miles, they stopped and built a fort, for winter was coming on. The expedition had arrived in what is now North Dakota. The fort, located in the country of the Mandan Indians, was called Fort Mondan. The following spring, the explorers continued on their way west and crossed the Rocky Mountains. Over this part of the journey, they had a wonderful guide. You will be surprised that their guide was a native woman. Her name was Sacagawea. She was known as the Bird Woman. The Bird Woman was born among the Shoshone Indians in what is now Idaho. Later, she was brought to the country of the Mondon Indians. She and her husband became members of the expedition. The Bird Woman led the expedition safely over miles of rough country until they reached the Shoshone Indian native land. There, among her own people again, she visited her brother and many of her friends. She persuaded the natives of her tribe to sell to Lewis and Clark the horses and supplies they would need. The next part of the journey was very difficult. The weather was cold. The deep mountain valleys with their swollen river were dangerous. The little party suffered many hardships. After reaching the Snake River, they followed it to the Columbia River. At last, in the middle of November 1805, they heard the roar of the mighty Pacific Ocean. They spent the winter on the coast. It was a hard winter, for they were short of food. In the spring of 1806, they started on the return trip. The bird woman and her husband came with them as far as the Mandon tribe. From there, the party traveled down the Missouri River. By the end of September, they were back at St. Louis. From the time the expedition left St. Louis until its return, they had traveled over 8,000 miles. They had gone on a long, dangerous journey over a region that was almost unknown to the white man. They had suffered from cold and hunger, but they had done well the big job they had started out to do. The reports and maps made by the explorers gave useful information of the entire region. Furthermore, skins and skeletons of animals and plants and seeds were brought back. Knowledge about the vast Louisiana Territory soon brought many settlers into the region. As more and more people settled, they demanded the organization of states. In time, out of the Louisiana Purchase were formed wholly 
or partly the states of Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. Lewis and Clark were each given a large amount of public land for their services. Lewis was made governor of the northern part of the Louisiana Territory, but he did not live to enjoy this office for very long. He died in 1809 while on a trip to Washington, D.C. Clark served as governor from 1813 to 1820. From 1822 until his death in 1838, he was in charge of Native American affairs. So we've now covered the Pale Indians, the expansion of Lewis and Clark, and the story of Sacagawea. We do hope you are enjoying our podcast and hope for you to enjoy more in the future to come. We love making them for you and hope you have a wonderful day.